Hi, this is Robin, and for the next hour or so, I'll be reading from the May 3rd, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The first article that I'll read is titled Gordon Lightfoot's 10 Essential Songs. The Canadian singer-songwriter, who died on Monday at age 84, brought his rueful baritone to memorable melancholy material. Bob Dylan once named Gordon Lightfoot one of his favorite songwriters and called the musician somebody of rare talent while inducting him into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame in 1986. On Dylan's 1970 album, Self-Portrait, he even recorded Lightfoot's Early Morning Rain and the respect was mutual. Lightfoot listened carefully to Dylan's songs, which instilled in him a more direct approach getting away from the love songs he once said. In an expansive career that drew from Greenwich Village folk and Laurel Canyon pop, Gordon Meredith Lightfoot Jr., who died on Monday at 84, was embraced by a diverse group of musicians, Elvis Presley and Duran Duran, Lou Rawls and the Replacements. He sang in a rueful baritone full of tenacity and an almost professorial air, and specialized in songs that dwelled on solitude or recounted unhappy relationships in grounded language that drew on folk and blues modes. Lightfoot's is the most voice of the romantic, Joffrey Stokes of the Village Voice wrote in 1974. For him, as for Don Quixote, one of his chosen heroes, Perfection is always in view and always slipping from his grasp. Nowhere was Lightfoot more beloved than in his native Canada, where he helped transform its music industry into a worldwide force. He sent a message to the world that we're not just a bunch of lumberjacks and hockey players up here. Getty Lee of Rush said in If You Could Read My Mind, a 2019 document documentary. We're capable of sensitivity and poetry. In the process, Lightfoot became one of the most successful recording artists of the 1970s. Here are 10 of Lightfoot's most beloved and impactful songs. For Lovin' Me, 1966. The folk tradition in which Lightfoot initially worked is full of boastful songs about rambling men who are lighting out for the territory, but this one is uniquely cruel. It's pushed along by his stout acoustic guitar strumming and David Ray's sleek finger-picking accents, which reinforce the lyrics hauteur. Everything you have is gone, Lightfoot tells the woman he's leaving. That's what you get for loving me. Her broken heart will eventually mend, he adds, at which point I just might pass this way again. He later felt some embarrassment about the song and said, I didn't know what chauvinism was. Early Morning Rain, 1966. Lightfoot grew up in bucolic central Ontario, which could hardly be farther from Memphis, but he sounds nearly Southern on this simple, brisk folk song, which Presley recorded a few years later. Its theme is homesickness. Lightfoot was living in LA when he wrote it. The narrator, who's as cold and drunk as I can be, in addition to broke, watches a 707 fly overhead and envies its freedom as he pines for his hometown. 
Did she mention my name? 1968. In this candy depiction of wounded pride, Lightfoot gets together with an old friend to shoot the breeze, but amid the chit-chat about sports and mutual acquaintances, he casually slips in a question that reveals his agenda. By the way, did she mention my name? This song and For Love and Me are fraternal twins joined by their fascination with male pride. Black Day in July, 1968. Lightfoot mostly worked the personnel relationship side of folk music and left the political side to others. The controversial Black Day in July has a restless, unsettled drum track and describes the July 1967 uprisings in Detroit in which black residents protested police abuse, prompting the governor to send in the National Guard and the president to send in the army. The song is full of irony, scorn, and bafflement. The soul of Motor City is feared across the land, and most U.S. radio stations refuse to play it. If You Could Read My Mind, 1970. Lightfoot's commercial breakthrough, it reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100, is also his masterpiece, with assistance from Nick DeCaro's cascading string arrangement. The lyrics, inspired by his impending divorce, range from poetic to stark until he reaches the stoic summary. Stories always end. The melody inspired Duran Duran's Save a Prayer, and the song has been covered by a who's who of singers, including Barbara Streisand, Johnny Cash, and Neil Young, and almost by Frank Sinatra, who tried to record it, but gave up, declaring it too long. Sundown, 1974. Lightfoot was an alcoholic and a rounder who knew a lot about tempestuous relationships. He wrote Sundown while in a jealous fit of fantasy about Kathy Smith, a girlfriend whose cheekbone he once broke during a fight. The lyrics typify his dark, terse romanticism, and the snaking guitar solo is one of the great Red Shea's finest moments. The song's been covered by, among others, The Goth Lenges, Scott Walker, and Depeche Mode. Rainy Day People, 1975. The mid-70s was Lightfoot's commercial peak, but this successor to the top 10 pop hits Sundown and Carefree Highway didn't get the reception it deserved. The chords and lyrics call to mind Jimmy Webb as Lightfoot, with his usual precise elocution, celebrates the way loyal friendships give succor to high-stepping strutters who land in the gutters. The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, 1976. His best-known song is one of the most unlikely pop hits, a six-and-a-half-minute folk ballad about a freighter that sank in Lake Superior a year earlier, killing 29 crew members. It's also surely the only top 40 song to ever mention Gitchigumi, the Chippewa name for Lake Superior. The impish rock band NRBQ sometimes played a slow, out-of-tune cover of the song, and if the audience didn't like it, it would play it a second time as well. The Circle is Small, 1978. In some of Lightfoot's lyrics, it's difficult to tell whether the conflicts he describes are factual or merely byproducts of a suspicious imagination. In this softly scornful song about cheating, which he recorded in 1968 and re-recorded 10 years later in a superior version, 
He believes his lover is using a friend's apartment to carry on an affair, and he implies that he'll eventually catch her. The city where we live might be quite large, but the circle is small. Harmony, 2004. In the 1980s, as music moved away from acoustic sounds, Lightfoot chased pop success by using synthesizers, drum machines, and the producer David Foster, but he didn't sound like himself. By the time of Harmony, he'd returned to working with the guitarists Shay and Terry Clements. Tobacco use had eaten away at the top of his range, but the title song of his penultimate studio album has a fragile, hard-worn tenderness that seems to look back at his career and his life with peaceful regret. The next article is titled, John Mulaney and the Insatiable Modern Audience. In John Mulaney's new Netflix special, Baby J, the comedian tells a story about one of the most desperate things he did while addicted to cocaine. In early 2020, Mulaney really wanted to stop using, but instead of reaching out to a therapist or a friend, he called his accountant and told him, the only way you can give me cash is if I email you and CC my doctor. That's the new rule. Mulaney then tells us how he spent the next several months trying to circumvent his own rule, including by buying a $12,000 Rolex on a credit card and then pawning it for $6,000 so he could buy drugs with the cash. Throughout this extended and very funny bit, Mulaney plays with the audience's reaction to his bad behavior. As he explains the Rolex caper, sort of laundering his own money, he says, I'm pretty good at reading a room. You're all very impressed by this plan. And later, I feel your judgment. You must think I'm pretty stupid. But the button at the end of the semi-sorted tale is, as you process and digest how obnoxious, wasteful, and unlikable that the story is, just remember, that's one I'm willing to tell you. It's a punchline, yes, but Mulaney is also creating a boundary. He's entertaining us with an unflattering confession while also making it clear in a subtle way that the audience won't get and isn't entitled to anything he doesn't want to share. It's not surprising that he'd draw this line at this moment. After all, as my friend and colleague Jason Zinoman notes in his review of Baby J, at some point in the last decade, John Mulaney stopped being merely a very successful comedian and transformed into something larger in the culture, the boyish sweetheart in a scene full of creeps, the wife guy who doesn't need children to be happy, the aspirational theater kid. I didn't grasp this shift until, in a short period of time, he checked into rehab, got a very public divorce, and had a child with the actress Olivia Munn. Judging by the reaction online, not to mention the texts on my phone, people had feelings about this, lots of them. Mulaney made the word parasocial go mainstream. I'm certainly not above a good parasocial bond. Probably no one is immune, as Madison Malone Kircher wrote for Slate when news of Mulaney's divorce broke two years ago and people got very weird about it. But I do think many people's expectations of celebrities have become unreasonable in the social media age. It's one thing to rudely speculate about a stranger's personal life in private chats, 
inevitable in Mulaney's case since his ex was a recurring character in his act. It's quite another to flood the internet with that speculation, impugning someone for behaving in a way that runs counter to our image of him. It used to be much easier for famous figures to maintain a firewall between their public personas and their private lives, and it used to require a lot more effort to blur the two. Time was, you'd have to crank up ye old, ye old microfiche if you wanted to find a record of everything a celebrity had ever said about his marriage. Now with a few clicks, you can find a trove of someone's talk show and podcast chatter, plow through it, and then deploy some stray tidbit in order to contrast it with his private behavior to label him a hypocrite without really knowing the context or backstory or how the circumstances of that person's life changed over time. Maggie Smith, the poet, not the Dowager Countess, is out with a new best-selling memoir about her divorce titled You Could Make This Place Beautiful that draws very explicit boundaries akin to the one Mulaney draws. The book, which consists of short chapters examining the demise of Smith's marriage from different angles, tells the reader from the outset that this is her story to share and that she isn't going to give all of herself away. This isn't a tell-all because all is something we can't access. We don't get all. Some, yes. Most, if we're lucky. All, no. There's no such thing as a tell-all, only a tell-some, a tell-most, maybe. This is a tell-mine, and the mine keeps changing because I keep changing. The mine is slippery like that. Smith turns this idea over and over throughout the book. More than 100 pages later, she writes, Maybe this isn't a tell mine, it's a find mine. I'm out with lanterns looking. According to Smith, her former husband couldn't handle her success. She told the Times Sarah Lyle that her marriage was never the same after her poem, Good Bones, went viral. Her husband had an affair about which Smith writes, Betrayal is neat because no matter what else happened, if you argued about work or kids, if you lacked intimacy, if you were disconnected and lonely, it's as if that person doused everything with a lighter fluid and threw a match. She has several chapters titled, Some People Will Ask, wherein she answers an imaginary interloper who says things like, why didn't you write more about person X or event Y? And she answers, a memoir is about the art of memory and part of the art is in the curation. It's in that curation that people everyone from marquee names like Mulaney to everyday anonymous folks still have to engage with friends, peers, neighbors, and even strangers when their relationships don't work out. They have to consider what stories to tell and what to keep to themselves, how much info, info to dole out to a particular audience and in what way without betraying themselves or others. And it can be a painful burden, particularly to in the immediate aftermath of a split. Judging by the largely positive reception for both Baby J and You Could Make This Place Beautiful, this kind of curation, this renegotiation of the contract between creator and audience is welcome. The creator, we're being reminded, owes us only the art, and we can interpret it however we please, but we're not owed someone else's soul to pick at. We're reminded that the only ones who really know what goes on in a marriage are the people in that marriage. 
and that both sides have a right to publicly comment on it as Mulaney's former wife, the artist Anna Marie Tendler, has done. Indeed, as the Dowager Countess once explained, she never takes sides in a broken marriage because however much the couple may strive to be honest, no one is ever in possession of the facts. Black and white, good and evil, polarized thinking doesn't leave space for messy human feelings and behaviors, and it doesn't allow for growth. You can't have great confessional work without either of those things. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The next article is titled, Whatever It Takes, The Street Teams Who Help Mentally Ill New Yorkers. Half a year with the street counselors who dispense free sneakers, monthly injections, and gentle encouragement to some of the city's most vulnerable and volatile residents. Chris Payton and Sonia Daly emerged from the subway into the brilliant sunshine to meet a client nesting on a pile of blankets near the Staten Island Ferry Terminal in Manhattan. It had taken their team almost five months just to track down the 43-year-old homeless woman chasing leads from the police and other homeless people. On this afternoon, last August, they were trying to help her find the Holy Grail an apartment where someone with a severe mental illness could build a stable life. The woman, M, flashed them a big smile. In her black baseball cap, long blonde wig, oversized sunglasses, and about 20 bracelets, she looked like a misplaced movie star. M, who has schizoaffective disorder, immediately began chattering. She said she was doing great thanks to Mr. Payton. He gave me a million dollar bill in cash, so I'm living off that. Her boyfriend sat beside her, rocking and weaving, one gloved hand in constant motion as if conducting an invisible orchestra. Her visitors were from a street team of clinicians called an intensive mobile treatment team who deliver a vast array of services, medical, social, material, logistical, spiritual, to some of the city's most vulnerable and volatile residents. They asked that M be identified only by her initial. Intensive mobile treatment is a mostly unheralded but crucial component of Mayor Eric Adams' attempts to tackle the overlapping crises of mental illness and homelessness. It's also a gentler, more holistic complement to blunter tactics that have grabbed more attention like sending the police and sanitation workers to tear down encampments and taking people to hospitals against their will. There are 31 such teams run by nonprofits under contract with the city, ministering to over 800 people with a wait list of 250 more. Their clients have struggled with homelessness and mental illness or substance abuse and often have criminal or violent histories. They live their lives both at the city's very margins and at the chaotic intersections of dysfunctional bureaucracies. There are other street programs that serve precarious New Yorkers. IMT is for the toughest cases. Over the course of seven months, two teams that share a Brooklyn office let a reporter and photograph shadow them. The team's workers meet clients where they are at shelters and hospitals, 
train stations, and park benches. They go along to court dates and housing interviews and inject them with anti-psychotic drugs on street corners. They buy them chopped cheese sandwiches and flip phones and warm socks, anything to keep clients engaged. Their job, said Ashwin Vassan, the city's health commissioner, is to be the glue that holds together the pieces of a fractured life. What this really comes down to is an accompaniment, Dr. Fassan said. Am I able to walk beside you in your journey? IMT teams, he said, follow the ethos of whatever it takes. There is no problem that isn't their problem. The city has found that the teams help people find stability, but the road there is steep and littered with obstacles. Hospitals discharge psychotic clients without notice. Shelters let benefit applications expire. Paperwork disappears. That August afternoon by the ferry, M's consciousness streamed out in a childlike voice. When I wake up, I'm not hungry. When I wake up, I'm not excited or sad, she told Mr. Payton and Ms. Daly. The way I sleep is I sleep on my back with my hand or arm around my head. That's important, my relaxation, and that will help you determine with what kind of housing you give me. Sometimes M seen to say the opposite of what might be true. I don't have a mental history of schizophrenic bipolar because my parents, they did great, and I didn't grow up in an abusive household, she said. Nobody didn't punch nobody when the money ran out. No matter how far into fantasy M wandered, Ms. Daly, a type of counselor called a peer specialist, and her boss, Mr. Payton, 50, the team's program director, guided her back toward the practical. To qualify for housing, they explained, she needed to go with them to a social security office. They could also help her get disability benefits. M enthusiastically agreed. I'm glad you're willing to work with us, Mr. Payton said. My job position is I'm a prim executive director, M said. I don't mind sleeping on the blanket, but every day I want to access my wealth and go to work. You have great work experience, Mr. Payton said, adding, we'll try to help you make your goals. M flashed into coherence. My goal is just to, th my goal is just to think clearly and not be schizophrenic and not be on drugs so that you can talk to me and get your point across and you can understand my disposition and what I'm trying to say, she said. Mr. Payton and Miss Daly gave M water and chocolate bars and tuna and fruit cocktail. They gave her a tent. Then they bid her farewell and spent most of the rest of the day chasing a client who had checked himself into a hospital, checked himself back out, and disappeared. The man resurfaced days later. Their team, Team Richmond, works out of a narrow, cluttered office on the second floor of an unmarked building in Brownsville, Brooklyn, flanked by a shuttered soul food restaurant and a storefront church. By the door downstairs, a photo is posted of a client who threatened the staff. Do not let this guy into this building, it says. Team Richmond cohabits with another intensive mobile treatment unit, Team Prospect, run by the same nonprofit, the Institute for Community Living. One morning in July, Team Prospect workers traded updates. A client named Oscar had been standing in the lobby of his building shouting, what happens in Manhattan stays in Manhattan. 
a woman who was under a Kendra's Law order requiring outpatient treatment had disappeared again. Lauren Schultz Kepps, Team Prospects Program Director, said that the woman had recently agreed to get her monthly medication injection. Then over the weekend, she just texted everyone, myself, the shelter director, saying she's going to put us in a meat grinder. The city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene launched three IMT teams in 2015 to help people whose complex needs were not met as they cycled through hospitals, shelters, jails, and the streets. In 2021, as the pandemic took a toll on public mental health, the city added 28 more teams. Unlike similar programs, intensive mobile treatment is funded directly by the city, not Medicaid, which gives it flexibility. If a client says they want to be a rich and famous rapper, we will write that. That's your goal, said Bridget Callahan, a vice president of the Institute for Community Living, who oversees its six teams. We're not into the business of reframing things so that it sounds clinically justifiable. For a team's 27 clients, there are nine staffers, including three social workers, a psychiatrist or nurse practitioner, and two peer specialists, like Ms. Daly, 51, who became a peer specialist after her own struggles with depression and anxiety. The approach is not cheap. The cost about $37 million annually works out to about $840 per client per week. But consider some of the alternatives. A week of inpatient care for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder at a city-run hospital costs roughly $13,000. A week at Rikers Island Jail costs in the vicinity of $10,000. Most IMT clients are homeless. As of September, about 30% of those who were homeless when they enrolled in the program had moved into housing, the city said. The clients were also considerably less likely to be incarcerated after enrollment than before, the city said. One of the hardest things a team must do is to win the trust of clients scarred by years of bad encounters with the system. We meet people where they are, whatever they need in the moment, said Jody Rudin, the Institute for Community Living's president. If they're hungry, we give them food. If they're cold, we give them a sweatshirt. One day in August, Ms. Schultz Kappis and several members of her team piled into a van and headed out to see clients. A man who once made headlines for throwing urine at a police officer, a homeless shelter resident with a manslaughter rap, a pregnant woman who needed her monthly shot of a schizophrenia drug. As the van crawled through traffic, Ms. Schultz Kappas got a text and yelled from the front seat, they're discharging Brandon. Brandon Jackson came to the team in March 2022 after two years on Rikers Island for beating and robbing a woman. He got off to a rough start. He sent the staff photos of him cutting himself. He sold his Risperidone, a flattening antipsychotic not known for its recreational appeal. Now he was hospitalized after attacking someone at his shelter. The night before, a hospital psychiatrist had emailed Ms. Schultz-Kappas that he continues to have little insight and is resistant to treatment. IMT teams usually try to help clients avoid hospitalization, but sometimes they push hospitals to hold them longer. The hospital is like, nope, they've been here for five days. They're taking their meds. They're not a danger, 
Miss Callahan said. And we're like, the second they leave, they're going to throw their meds in the garbage. The constant loop of progress and backsliding can be overwhelming, Ms. schultz Capus said. But it's just keeping in mind, these clients have been through so much and don't have anyone. And even seeing just a little progress, like someone reaching out when they're in crisis or answering the phone. Grace Coviello, the team's psychiatric nurse practitioner, finished her sentence. It's like counting little tiny baby wins. Over time, sometimes the wins add up. After Mr. Jackson's hospitalization, he stayed on his medications. It's just a great time right now, he said on an office visit in late December. He hoped to get his high school equivalency diploma, then a job. In February, Mr. Jackson, 32, moved into a shared supportive housing apartment run by the Institute for Community Living. His new life had begun. For most clients, the city assigns to an IMT team the intervention comes after decades of trouble. M grew up in Chicago. Her mom drove a school bus and her dad was a roofer. He had bipolar disorder and abused M's mother and M's sister, who asked to be identified as Marie, her middle name. M had two children very young, at 14 and 15. She worked briefly in a hair salon. She got into drugs. When she hit her 20s, her family saw something wasn't right. At gatherings, she would seem so happy, her sister said. Then all of a sudden, she would be like, I can't take this anymore. And she would just up and leave and wouldn't return until the next day. And she wouldn't remember what happened. At her first hospitalization, she received a diagnosis, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. Her life ever since, her sister said, has been punctuated by medicated periods of relative lucidity hospital stays, jail stints for prostitution and other minor crimes, and long stretches lost in a fog. Once she took off to Miami to live the high life. Sometimes she feels like she's a celebrity, Marie said. In 2020, while living with Marie in Wisconsin, M asked for money to go shopping. The next her sister heard from her, M was in New York. She stayed for a while in shelters on Staten Island but was hospitalized briefly after she spat on another shelter resident. For the next two years, M seldom slept indoors, except in train and subway stations. In recent months, Mr. Payton had been urging her to try supportive housing and got her a phone interview with a prospective landlord. The interview did not go well. M learned that the apartment was temporary and that she would need to stay on medication and meet with a case manager. Before the interview, Mr. Payton said, M was lucid. Once it started, she began rhapsodizing about moonbeams in Florida. Her way of saying no and not wanting to deal with people is to go into psychosis, he said. It would have been easier to get M an apartment if she were medicated, and a team can ask a judge to mandate outpatient treatment, including medication, under Kendra's law. But IMT teams tend not to want to coerce their clients. Would I prefer that she be in a shelter? Ms. Callahan said earlier this year. Yes, but this is the life that she is actively choosing to live. In November, the police found M yelling threats at passersby. She was hospitalized in Brooklyn for three weeks. During that time, Mayor Adams announced a policy to remove homeless people with severe mental illness from the streets, drawing mixed reviews. 
Before M was discharged, she was giving an antipsychotic injection that lasts a month. Ms. Callahan said, When Ms. Daly visited her at the foot of an escalator just inside the Court Square subway station in Queens right before Christmas, she was still largely coherent and considerably more subdued. Ms. Daly was there to do M's application for disability income. It was 30 pages long. For the employment section, M mentioned her job at the hair salon. What are some of the hairstyles you did, Ms. Daly asked. Dreads, sew-ins, and short haircuts, M said. In this job, did you use machines, tools, and equipment? I used curlers. After Ms. Daly left, M phoned Mr. Payton. Chris, I'm just calling to see if the housing is going to go in effect so I can know when I'm moving, she said in a voicemail message. In early February, a spot opened in a temporary home in Coney Island run by the Institute that offered a fast track to permanent supportive housing. M could have it with one caveat. M's boyfriend, Stanley, could not live with her if they were not married or registered domestic partners. M agreed to give it a try. Ms. Daly went to get her at a subway station. Have you told Stanley? Ms. Daly asked. Stanley, I'm going with Sonia, M said. Stanley and M looked searchingly at each other. I'll stay, M told Ms. Daly. Stay where? Here, with him. Ms. Daly left them. When I was doing the training, training to be a peer specialist, they said there's three needs that a person has to have. A home, love, and a job, she said. And this is what she found. She found love, and it's heartbreaking to separate them. Three freezing days later, M called. Was the bed still available? It was. I changed my mind because I wanted to have something, M said as she arrived in Coney Island with Ms. Daly looking nervous but determined. I want to go back to school. I want to do something with my life. Mr. Payton was not with them. He had quit a few weeks before to work for another social service agency for more money, though he said he loved the job running an IMT team. The house in Coney Island was on a quiet street. Inside, it was newly renovated, spotless. The host greeted M warmly. She came in smiling, so that's good, the house's evening coordinator, Tessie Brennan, said as M took a shower. The scent of dinner cooking filled the house. They showed M her room, a double, but M was the first woman to move in, so Ms. Brennan told her to pick a bed. This bed, M said, sitting on it. It had a festive orange spread. M had a lot of questions. When would she get permanent housing? Would she have an apartment with a balcony? Ms. Daly said she would try to get a phone for Stanley and connect him with services. M thanked her. I feel fulfilled of my job with what I have accomplished today, Ms. Daly said as she headed home. The next day, M signed herself out and did not return. The program gave her bed to someone else. M went back to camping in Queens for a few weeks. On a chilly Monday in March, Ms. Daly escorted her back to Penn Station. This time, her sister in Wisconsin had bought her a ticket home. M blew Ms. Daly a kiss goodbye as she boarded the train. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The next article is titled, A New Spike in Global Temperatures in the Forecast. 
the World Meteorological Organization reports increased odds that El Nino, the global weather pattern often tied to intense heat, will arrive by fall. Forecasters from the World Meteorological Organization are reporting increased chances that the global climate pattern known as El Nino will arrive by the end of summer. With it comes increased chances for hotter than normal temperatures in 2024. While there is not yet a clear picture of how strong the El Nino event will be or how long it might last, even a relatively mild one could affect precipitation and temperature patterns around the world. The development of an El Nino will most likely lead to a new spike in global heating and increase the chance of breaking temperature records, said Patiri Talas, the Secretary General of the Meteorological Organization in a news release. El Nino is associated with warmer than normal ocean surface temperatures in the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean. In the United States, it tends to lead to rainier, cooler conditions in much of the south and warmer conditions in part of the north. Elsewhere, El Nino can bring increased rainfall to southern South America and the Horn of Africa and severe drought to Australia, Indonesia, and parts of southern Asia. El Nino, together with its counterpart, La Nina, is part of the intermittent cycle known as the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO, that is highly influential in shaping year-to-year -year variations in weather conditions across the globe. ENSO is a naturally occurring phenomenon, and scientists are still researching exactly how human-caused climate change over the past 150 years may be impacting the behavior and dynamics of El Nino and La Nina events, with some studies suggesting that El Nino events may be more extreme in a warmer future. Conditions in the tropical Pacific have been in a neutral state since the latest La Nina event ended this year. La Nina conditions had persisted through a rare three consecutive winters in the Northern Hemisphere, supercharging Atlantic hurricane seasons and prolonging severe drought across much of the western United States. Yet, despite the cooling effect La Nina typically has, the last eight years have been the hottest on record, a worrisome addition to the longer-term pattern of temperatures that have been steadily rising as the world continues to emit greenhouse gases from burning coal, oil, and natural gas. According to the World Meteorological Organization Outlook, there is about a 60% chance that El Nino will form between May and July, and an 80% chance it will form between July and September. The forecasts are based on observations of wind patterns and ocean temperatures, as well as climate modeling, said Wilfran Mofumo Okia, head of the Climate Prediction Services Division at the organization which is a United Nations agency. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration issued a similar outlook last month. Both groups caution that while El Nino events are associated with certain typical conditions, they unfold differently each time. But in general, the warmest year of any decade will be an El Nino year and the coldest a La Nina one, according to data from the NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. 
Research surrounding global warming's effects on precipitation and temperature worldwide is much more conclusive. It has intensified wet and dry global extremes, prolonged heat waves, and warmed winters. There's little doubt that El Nino loads the dice in favor of higher global mean temperatures, said Michelle Lajero, a climate scientist with NOAA's Climate Prediction Center. But separately, climate change has led to global temperatures that are, on average, warmer over time, she said, and the combination of both could lead to more record-breaking temperatures. The next article is titled, Six Ways to Level Up Your Daily Walk. Experts say Americans are taking more walks than before the pandemic. Here are some ways to turn your neighborhood stroll into an exciting workout. At 76 years old, Judy Fogg is one of the fittest people her daughter knows. Take, for instance, her VO2 max, a common fitness metric that measures how much oxygen one can absorb while exercising. She has a VO2 max that's not too far off from a Nordic skier, and they're considered peak of the peak, said Robin Fogg Wiltsey, a physiologist and physical trainer. Her mother's secret? Daily walks. Over the past couple years, the world has significantly changed its relationship to walking, with millions of people strolling their neighborhood sidewalks or local trails, hoping to boost their fitness, sense of community, and mental health. Studies have shown that walking at least 30 minutes per day is enough to reap significant physical and emotional benefits. But circling the same humdrum sidewalk for thousands of steps can quickly turn from a daily treat into a repetitive chore. There are dozens of ways to change it up and put the sizzle back into your saunter if you're willing to think outside the box. Try Nordic walking. Originally developed in Finland as a way to train cross-country skiers during the off-season, Nordic walkers use specially designed poles with rubber tips to grab the pavement and help engage the arms and core muscles, turning a simple walk into a full-body workout. Trekkers who can stomach the goofiness of city walking with sticks will see, on average, a 22% increase in calorie expenditure and will consume 23% more oxygen. The more oxygen your body can consume, the more effectively it can generate energy during workouts. Companies like Leakai and Black Diamond sell various expensive high-tech poles for would-be hikers, but proper technique is more important than the label. Whether you use a pole with a handle and strap or two sticks, the focus of Nordic should really be on the fact that you're using anything to engage your upper body, said Kirk Shave, who trains Nordic walkers at Mountain Trek Fitness Retreat and Health Spa in British Columbia. He said that you should hold the poles with your elbows bent at a 90-degree angle and your forearms parallel to the ground. Next, you should use your triceps to press the pole tips into the trail behind you and push off, propelling your body forward. The number one problem for hikers, runners, walkers is ultimately knees and ankles, Mr. Shave explained. Taking some of the strain off the lower body by using poles while walking on flat terrain and downhills can help avoid compression issues in these joints, he added. Have a little fun. Play is critical, said Bill Burnett, 
Executive Director of the Life Design Lab at Stanford University and co-author of the book, Designing Your Life. From an early age, he said, our brains learn and develop habits through fun. When you were a kid, the way you learned to do things is you played with them, he said. After two years of strolling around the same streets in San Francisco during the coronavirus pandemic, he's become hungry for novelty, sometimes taking himself on scavenger hunts for secret staircases, orange flowers, or birdsong. To Mr. Burnett, the way we frame modern exercise burns people out after a while because it's easy to get locked into a mind-numbing habit of counting steps on a smartwatch. Bringing a sense of curiosity to a walk can be a powerful antidote for the mundane. Alistair Humphreys, adventurer and author of Microadventures, Local Discoveries for Great Escapes, said that you could stoke your adventurous side in your own neighborhood. In 2020, he pushed himself to run, walk, or bike down every street in his London suburb and discovered places that he never knew existed. The challenge is to try to see things with fresh and open eyes, as if for the very first time, he said. Climb a tree. Go for a full moon hike without a flashlight. Drink your morning cup of coffee in a new location every day or look up your local disc golf course. Keep it silly, not serious. Bring on the props. Some walkers may have lofty long-term goals. Perhaps you want to cover more distance or try a backpacking trip. The best way to prepare your muscles for higher intensity activities is to increase resistance, perhaps by training with a weighted day pack, says Miss Fogg Wiltsey. She suggested starting with no more than 15 pounds in a backpack with a full hip belt, which, when cinched snugly near the belly button, transfers the weight into your legs while you walk. This helps exercisers avoid neck and back pain caused when a heavy load compresses the spinal column. Ms. Fogg Wiltsey, who has trained clients to climb Mount Everest and to compete in the American Ninja Warrior Finals, added that popping a set of elastic exercise bands into your pack and doing a series of sumo or monster walks while out could help strengthen the important muscles like the gluteus medius, which is important for dynamic stability. In a half squat position, place the band just below your knees, then step side to side towards your right, keeping your knees parallel and hips distance apart. Next, stepping laterally towards your left, repeat the motion for a few paces, keeping your weight in your heels by holding a deep squat. Make sure your feet are parallel throughout and aim to do two sets of 10 sometime during each walk. Lastly, a good set of insoles will help prevent something called overpronation, said Dr. Michael Fredrickson, a professor of orthopedics at Stanford University. Pronation is when the foot rolls inward, usually caused by an arch that is not strong enough to properly support the body's weight. Those with flatter feet are more likely to experience it. Products from brands like Superfeet and Soul can counteract the most common forms of pronation by supporting the center of a foot's arch, Dr. Fredrickson said. But if you have a more complex issue, he added, a custom orthotic might be needed. Multitask like a pro. One of the trickiest parts of committing to a daily walking routine is fitting it into an already tight schedule, said Jennifer Farr Davis, an author and the owner of Blue Ridge Hiking Company. 
but, she said, you can squeeze in extra steps in a surprising number of places. For instance, when picking up your children from school, park six blocks away and walk the rest. Having 10 or 15 minutes to decompress while walking to the car can also help children unwind and get some energy out, she said, adding that it helps me have some focused time with my kids. Ms. Farr Davis also likes to trade in her Zoom meetings for walking meetings whenever possible, especially with local coworkers. When your body's moving, your brain's stimulated in different ways and you're more creative, she said, noting that these moving meetups often lead to better conversations among her colleagues. Crank up the tunes. Listening to music during a walk or an intense training session has been shown to decrease perceived exertion and increase physical performance, according to a recent meta-analysis. In other words, exercising harder doesn't feel as strenuous when we turn on our favorite playlists. Ms. Falk-Wiltsey added that she saw similar results when her clients engaged in any type of preferential listening while working out. If music's not your thing, podcasts could do the same, she said. Embrace the fartlek. Swedish for speed play, fartlek workouts use a type of interval training that involves a series of high-intensity bursts with recovery periods between them. The beauty of the fartlek is that unlike in traditional high-intensity interval training workouts, walkers or runners don't have to glue themselves to a watch or fitness tracker to boost their muscular endurance. Just amp up your gait to a lighter jog or a power walk for a short stretch to get your heart rate up. Slow back down until you feel recovered and repeat. If you prefer a more structured approach, start with a 10-minute walking warm-up, then do 6 to 10 one-minute faster intervals, each followed by two minutes of easy walking, said Matt Fitzgerald, author of 80-20 Running and co-founder of a training company called 80-20 Endurance, and then cool down with 5 to 10 minutes of walking. Dividing up your weekly exercise so that 80% of your time is spent at a low intensity and 20% is spent at a moderate to high intensity, much like the training regimens of competitive marathoners, he said, can help everyday athletes get fitter faster. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 3rd, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Robin. Thanks for listening.